Welcome to Still Scared Talking Children's Horror, a podcast about creepy, spooky and disturbing children's books, films and TV. I'm Ren Wednesday, my co-host is Adam Wybray, and today we're talking about the 1955 novel The Chrysalids by John Wyndham. A full transcript of this episode will be available, so check the show notes for that. Enjoy! Adam. Hello. Uh, welcome to our, our 15th episode. <laughs> Is this officially our 15th episode? Because I think we've lost track. Yeah, well, we might have, but I just, I think now every time it's a vaguely round number, I'm just excited. So, um. Is 15 a round number? Any time it's an odd or even number. (laughs) (laughs) I'm basically, I'm just impressed every time we do one of these. Um, Oh, no, that's, no, you're right. That's the spirit I should have. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this is our special 15th episode. Check us out. Well done. Um, Well done to us. Um, And it's uh, The Chrysalids by John Wyndham. So Chrysalids... Crystal, because I'm I'm going to keep mispronouncing this like crispy lips or something. <laughs> crispy lips. Crisp, the crispy lips. That's, that, that, that sounds creepier. Um, the chrysalids, or um, uh, just to be different, I'm reading an American copy from the 1970s, uh, which instead is called Rebirth. Oh, okay, that's nice. I thought it'd be called Damn Telepathic Commies or something. <laughs> Um, and it seems to have uh, some minor differences from the original text Um, for example there's a character a relatively minor character called Rachel in um, presumably your copy who's called Deborah in mine Mm, nice no idea why but there you go I guess Deborah they probably focus tested it and Deborah goes down better with American audiences I guess um, yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, so if there's any other things that I say and you're like, mm, I don't think it does that, then uh, maybe it's just... Uh... <laughs> like, if you're like, and then of course there's that scene with the giant penguin. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that might just spice it up a little bit. Um, <laughs> so uh, Mackie, who's our delightful intro music uh, composer, uh, suggested this one. Oh, his uh, John Wyndham's her favourite author, and um, so uh, on her suggestions, I've read quite a few of his novels over the last few years. Um, and I think this one most fits the bill, as it's it's definitely quite scary, and the protagonists are children slash teenagers. Yeah, I mean, I think it has similar thematics to most young adult. Most, <laughs> that's a bit of a joke. But, but to lots of young adult um, sort of adventure 
kind of mm-hmm. fiction, right? Like a, a, a group of plucky outsiders having to band together against some form of state or organised persecution uh, mm-hmm. with a, an extended chase sequence with moments of peril. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think... I mean, I don't know whether it would have been written specifically for a young adult audience. I'm not sure it would have been, but... Um, it was written, it's, yeah, published in 1955, so I'm not sure that was... I don't know. But, or, I mean... It, yeah. I mean, my mum my liked um, John Wyndham as a young adult, so mm. I mm. think if I'd read this when I was a teenager, I wouldn't have felt like, oh, I'm reading something for grown-ups here. You know, I, I wouldn't have felt like, oh, this is definitely adult literature. I think it would have seemed mm. like it was kind of written for me. Yeah, it seems to often be um, set uh, as a set text in schools for the sort of GCSE age. <laughs> I, I noticed that actually because yeah. uh, I listened <laughs> to Google the audio. It. Well, I listened to the audio um, version on YouTube, oh, okay. and a lot of the comments were saying things like, "This is so boring. I have to listen to this, but I don't want to." <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of cued me into thinking it must be some kind of set text. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well we read it because we wanted to yeah yeah absolutely Uh, well i i read it because you told me to but you know obviously i wanted to for the podcast (laughs) (laughs) um i mean i might try to make you read water babies for next week though so okay (laughs) 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 Uh, any anyway um crispy um, lips <laughs> yeah it's um it's set in a small town called Wacknook in labrador newfoundland or newf as they call it um is that what the li- kids call it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's lost the rest of its name to, to, over the generations um but <laughs> to, to, to nuclear decay yeah <laughs> <laughs> um they live an unspecified number of generations past the tribulation uh which is a sort of catastrophic nuclear event um on all sides they're surrounded by fringes which then sort of bleed into badlands which are areas that become progressively more afflicted by fallout and less inhabitable um so because of this the the people of Wacknook, with the main character David's preacher father at the forefront are extremely vigilant about destroying crops and animals that are deviant or mutated in any way, and that they therefore see as offences to God. Uh, Newborn babies are also subject to visits from the inspector, who determines if they are true forms or a blasphemy, which deviates from the physical norm in any way, and is consequently banished as subhuman. Um... So they're made to recite the definition of man, which um, part of it goes, and each leg shall be jointed twice and have one foot and each foot five toes and each toe shall end with a flat nail and so on. And it's kind of like that knee bones connected to the thigh bone song, but (laughs) sinister. (laughs) I I did actually have to, not knowing my Bible very well, I had to check whether it was actually in the Bible. (laughs) It's not. It's not, no. Um, this is the bit they've they've added on. Not um, that I would have put it past the Bible, I have to say. <laughs> um, so, the story starts when David's about 
nine years old and he goes off exploring and meets a girl called Sophie who secretly has six toes on each foot and he only finds this out by accident because she's she's sprained her ankle um so we have the juxtaposition of sort of learning about his father's extreme religious bigotry at the same time as David is befriending someone who's the target of it um there's one detail about his father um is that he killed a neighbor's tailless cat um because <laughs> he decided it was an offense um and went vigilante style after this cat um, before the information reached the community that cats without tails were a recognised breed. Um, so that's the kind of guy he is. <laughs> I like that that's, that's the main reason. You're like, yeah, he's definitely a bad guy. Kills freaking cats. Kills a cat. He, he kills a cat. Killer. <laughs> cat killer. Doesn't matter if he's a baby killer, but cat killer. <laughs> um... <laughs> yeah. Um well, I say baby killer uh, is that they they leave the babies to fend for themselves out in the elements. So I think it's fair fair to call him a baby killer. I, I was mean, wondering about that because and how that logistically worked because there are people living in the fringes but surely if they check them all as babies then how would well they were just really hardcore babies <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> i guess so um... <laughs> i mean so... i don't know the romans did it so you know like i guess i don't know where i'm going with that at all <laughs> i hate i hate the romans <laughs> <laughs> yeah romans are... poo yeah oh. Um, I'm going to have to put an explicit language tag on this one now. Oh no! Oh no! Because of my disgusting no, no, I'm, I'm going to um, I'll dub it out or something. I'll replace a word in your voice. <laughs> it's fine. We but, are allowed to swear. No, like, it'd be I'll... seamless. We, we might have children listeners. You oh. know. I don't want to be some <laughs> corrupter of the youth. <laughs> okay. Um. So it'll be fine. It'll be seamless. um so yeah there is a another apart from the cat thing there is another harrowing early scene in which um david overhears his aunt coming to the house in distress with his baby who has apparently one little thing different about it neither he nor the reader finds out what that thing is um and she's asking his mum if she can borrow david's newborn little sister to show the inspector instead and her mother is aghast and calls the baby a monster and his father banishes her from the house and the next morning both her and the baby are found drowned um so pretty i bet it it was a sticky out belly button like i have (laughs) well i mean that's kind of the thing is that we don't really know how far they go with this like they they seem pretty, yeah, pretty fiercely pedantic. I mm. think. Um, yeah. <laughs> but of course, they aren't so able to police inner differences, uh, yes. and so it transpires that our uh, young protagonist um, is different in his own way, in that he can uh, produce and receive 
thought shapes or thought images. Hmm. So yeah. this is a kind of telepathy, basically, a sort of emotional, pre-linguistic or um, semi-linguistic telepathy. Hmm. I mean, you've you've said before that because I, I very much have a kind of Mark Corrigan-esque inner monologue constantly. <laughs> but you, you say you do have quite a lot of sort of abstract thoughts that aren't really translatable to language, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I just think in pictures and shapes and stuff quite a lot. <laughs> um, um, so maybe it's like if you could, you know, transmit those things to people. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, sort of. It's not quite the same as as language. Um, uh, more, more, more like the texture of the week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But any, anyway, is uh, David the main character's mm. name? Yeah. So, yes. so David uh, and his cousin um, both have. Disability. Yes, and then a group of other children, young people, sort of in the surrounding area, who come to know each other just through sharing the thought shapes together. Um, yeah, and so there's a lot of there's quite a, a lot of threat um, and foreboding in the. Um, like from the start of the of the novel, because you see how hostile the environment is to physical differences, and doesn't seem like they'll be any more accommodating to to David and the others if they found out about their difference. Um, he has a a kind of the kind of insider outsider character um, is his uncle. Uh, Uncle Axel, who um, who um, was a sailor and who sort of sailed round bits of um, bits of the continent and sort of seen the badlands and the strange mutated landscapes. Um, Axolotl experiences. <laughs> yeah. Um, Thanks. Uh, I, I can't resist an axolotl reference. I just love them. Yeah, they're just good. They're good friends, Adam. Aww. <laughs> um, and and dedicated listeners. And dedicated listeners, yeah. Shout out to all those axolotls. Um. So he he finds out that about um, sort of sees David sort of muttering to himself and asks about it and finds out that he's communicating with his cousin Rosalind and tells him, oh, you, you better not. <laughs> you better not let people find out about this. Um, so he sort of um, teaches David and the rest to be cautious. And so they kind of grow up under the threat of being found out. And, and traumatically, uh, Sophie, the girl... David Meads at the beginning of the book does get found out. Yeah. Um, so they go paddling together and so she kind of very daringly takes off 
her boots and um and goes paddling in the stream but then someone unexpectedly a boy from the from the village turns up and Sophie leaves a, a six a six toed footprint on the rock which he sees um and Sophie's um so they go they go back to Sophie's parents and they're like right we have to leave so they pack they pack the family off and then um, David's father beats him until he finds out um about Sophie um but uh they yeah the family end up getting caught by a patrol um yeah which is fairly horrifying yeah it's genuinely like it's funny I guess because I suppose Parley being a 1950s writer John Wyndham has a fairly kind of restrained style. Like, there's no pornographic detail in mm. in the books whatsoever. Um, but there are times where it, it really did remind me of, say, the Fallout games or um, Apocalypse World or other kind of more lurid um, post-apocalyptic narratives. Um, mm. because, because there is real horror in it, and especially in terms of this policing of difference um, and yeah. yeah, the fates uh, awaiting those who are deemed to be mutants. Mm. Um, yeah, we find out uh, much later in the book that Sophie is still alive, but she's been sterilised and sent to the fringes to eke out an existence as best she can. Um, but yeah. Um, I think he actually, uh, to his credit, did quite a good job at getting across the psychological impact of this as well when we meet Sophie again. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty it's pretty disturbing as we've seen her as, you know, a happy, sort of carefree kid. <laughs> yeah, in the book, I think and she's then... quite a sort of appealing little kid when she's yeah. young, you know. That, yeah. Um, yeah, and you see how how traumatised she's been by this um, and how hard her life has been yeah, yeah. I, I just had to say that like so I've just read through a incredibly variable um, anthology uh, edited by Harlan Ellison so I, I probably uh, should have known what I was in for a bit more um, from the 1960s called Dangerous Visions Mm-hmm. I think oh, it's a sort of seminal sci-fi anthology, and you know some of the stories had their moments. Uh, some some seemed very paranoid in retrospect. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> there, there, there was one um, about uh, the future of organ donation. I guess uh, organ donation had just sort of become viable in the nineteen sixties, mm. uh, and. It basically, uh, in the afterword, the writer says, well, you may think this is a good thing now, but just you wait. They'll be executing people for speeding and all sorts just so people can get to their lovely organs. (laughs) (laughs) Seemed very convinced that, uh, you know, by the 1980s, this was going to be the case. Yeah. Um, But a lot of the stories were just really tiresomely and hideously misogynist. Mm. Like, um, I think a lot of older sci-fi yeah, mm-hmm. uh, is is really misogynist, and that's not something I I get from Wyndham. Um, yeah, this is one of the actually great things about Wyndham is that 
he writes proper female characters. Um, and I, I think it's fair to say that that's rare for uh-huh. male sci-fi authors. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's right, rare for male authors, but it, it's particularly... Male ex- sci-fi authors of the 50s, I mean... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, props to Wyndham for that. Um. And I think actually the female characters in this book are slightly more compelling, I think, than the male characters. David, as a protagonist, spends most of the time slightly befuddled, almost. Yeah, he's... Yeah, he's he's not the most um, compelling of characters. He's just... Yeah, he's just a fairly sort of bland kind of narrator. Yeah, whereas I think think Rosalind... I found more interesting. She seemed to have a kind of richer internal life to me. Mm. Yeah, I. Yeah, and there's Rosalind and and Sophie and. Um, Is it Anne and? And Catherine? even like, yeah, uh, Sally and Catherine. Um, and then, um, David's little sister Petra as well. So. Yeah, so there. So there's this great deal of of threat that when they're growing up, um, and one sort of thing that seems like it might it might expose them is that um, one of their group, Anne, decides to marry a norm, which um, one of them, they, one of them describes as um, like pretending to only have one arm because the person one wants to marry has only one arm. So she decides that she's not going to communicate with thoughts at all. She's just going to be a normal person. Um, And um, so she cuts off all communication with them. But then about a year into her marriage, um, her husband's found shot dead by an arrow and Anne commits suicide. And it's revealed later that it was Uncle Axel who killed her husband um, because he realised that Anne had told him about her power, about the other people who had it. And that he would use it to blackmail them. Um, and Anne herself leaves a note for the inspector denouncing all of them. Um, but uh, one of their one of their number, I think it's Rachel slash Deborah, gets to it in it, time yeah, to it, I think intercept it's her it. Her sister. Mm. Um, so that's kind of one narrow escape, but then the actual sort of crunch point comes from um, David's little sister, Petra. Um, Whose who, psychic powers are clearly far uh, far in advance or far more powerful than any of the other characters. Yeah. Um, so, um, Mackie is saying that she finds Petra slightly unnerving. <laughs> um just like there's just kind of a like a touch of midwitch cuckoo about her kind yeah, of yeah and it's interesting because midwitch cuckoos comes after this book um mm. by by a few years um but i can totally see that and it's interesting because midwitch cuckoos is basically the inverse of this book it's the psychic children uh, treated as the antagonists nominally at least um 
Whereas here, obviously, they're the sympathetic protagonists. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's sort of interesting to read them sort of side by side. Um, because uh, the midwitch cookies have... Um, well, they have this power that they they can prevent... Um, they can prevent their, their mothers um from leaving them so their mothers are can't leave the village um as they just just stop them um but petra um they find out about her power because um she um she falls in a river and um just like produces this um just overwhelming signal um to um to all the people with the with the sensibility, like yeah, sends out this shock wave, and they're all yeah, uh, sort of magnetized almost towards it. Yeah, um, which um, yeah, which is quite a dangerous thing to happen because it means they're running towards her, and no one knows like how they f- how they find out that that she's in danger. So. And it's just David and Rosalind that time, and they sort of go, "Oh, couldn't you hear her screaming?" Um, kind of, we did, sort of thing. And they kind <laughs> yeah, of <laughs> not not very convincingly. <laughs> yeah, but they managed to get away with it. But um, but the second time it happens, she's um, a few years later. Petra um, is riding in the forest, which she's not meant to do, and um, some sort of mutated creature um, attacks her pony. Um, so it's ripping its throat out. So she's sort of clinging to a tree and emitting this, this again, like a really intense distress signal. And all of them start running towards her um, or riding towards her. Very um, much one of the points in the book where I was imagining proceedings like a and d or fighting fantasy campaign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, so she she sort of un, unwittingly gathers the whole group towards her, and they manage to send some of them away again, but it's still David, Rosalind, and Sally and Catherine are all there in the forest, and someone comes across and is just just uh, sort of inexplicable how they would all know um, that Petra was in distress, um, so. Yeah. And I, I like I like the fact that Rosalind in particular is not afraid uh, to voice her occasional aff- affectionate irritation towards Petra. <laughs> yeah, Petra is um, <laughs> uh, um... <laughs> so later on Petra starts communicating uh with another uh, psychic person um who is broadcasting their thought shapes it turns out from all the way from New Zealand and yeah. um, they start communicating with this woman and uh, she expresses that Petra is especially unique and tremendously important and that um, the kids have to protect her at all costs yeah. um, and then <laughs> it says um, then Petra came in whatever she may have failed to make of the rest she had caught the last part all right that's me she proclaimed <laughs> with satisfaction and totally unnecessary vigour we rocked and recovered. Beware, odious smug child. 
We haven't met Harry Jack yet, Rosalind told her, with subduing effect. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that too. Um, <laughs> Petra's, um, her, her, she's so powerful that she just, she's like a, what's it, like... Um, like Obelix and Asterix and Obelix. She like oh. she doesn't know her own strength. She yeah. just like <laughs> she um she fell in a cauldron as a baby and now she's incredibly psychic. But um, <laughs> she yeah uh, uh, a cauldron um, of atomic power. <laughs> yeah, um, but she she's kind of doing the telepathic equivalent of constantly bellowing the, in the other people's ears. Yeah, you have to keep telling her to to quiet down. Um, um so yeah Petra David and Rosalind managed to escape before the inspector comes um to their door but the the two other girls um Sally and Catherine are taken to the inspector um and this is one of the other one of the main points of horror in the book is that they're interrogated and Catherine's tortured into giving up the information um and because of their shared ability, the torture has this particular horrible extra aspect to it where it says um, when they what they hear from Catherine, it's like, it was not a thought shape. It had no real form. It was sheer distress, like a cry of agony. Petra gasped and threw herself whimpering into Rosalind's arms. The impact was so sharp it hurt. So... Yeah, we we learned that Catherine has been has been tortured into giving up the information, um, and they all sort of feel that shock to yeah. a certain extent. I've seen quite a few YouTube videos about empaths um, recently, um, mm. and I, I, I suppose it's it's similar to if someone's sort of deeply empathetic and soaks up all the emotions of others like a sponge um, Mm -hmm. that sometimes this is going to be very loving and good and sometimes it's going to be um, extraordinarily painful Mm. I don't know have you ever read um, The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler Um, no I haven't I think my my dad I think I bought it for my dad at some point but I haven't actually read it yeah, um, it's um, it's just it's incredibly harrowing and powerful. Um, but um, the main character in that is um, has uh, because her well, her parents was addicted to some kind of drug, so she has this um, intense empath ability, so that if she sees someone in pain, she shares their pain. Um, yeah. Um, But but not not children's horror presumably. No 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 really not at all. Um, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> oof. I, I recommend it, but it's um it's 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 yeah it's really really intense. Um. Anyway. Um, back so, to this book. The kid the kids flee, understandably. Mm. Um, um. They know they've they've been discovered, and so they hot tail it. Um towards the wastelands basically or or the badlands 
Yeah, they go to the fringes, which is the kind of the part where people are um, abandoned to if they're seen as um, deviants or whatever. Um, but um, it's kind of where the um, the crops and the animals and the plants are all starting to sort of grow in sort of unrecognisable forms like they're not wholly unrecognizable yet but they're not eldritch forms eldritch forms <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and then so the last sort of part of the of the novel is really this quite extended chase sequence where petra david and rosalind are on the run and um Petra's in touch with this woman from Zealand, as they call it, um, who is um, so vastly impressed with Petra's ability that she is um, commanding an airship halfway around the world to rescue them. Um, although yeah. she's also quite blatantly uninterested in any of them apart from Petra. Um, yeah, which I wasn't sure how is interesting because, you know, well, a spoiler, but they they get rescued or at least most of them mm. um and ostensibly it's a happy ending i guess mm. but i think we're not i don't know i was interested in to what degree you thought we were meant to trust the new zealanders or think that they were utopian or whether they yeah. were kind of replacing one prison for a new prison it's ambiguous um mm. because the um the the Zealand woman is, I mean, she's not the most comforting of characters. Um, she's, she has this habit of sort of speaking in kind of didactic pronouncements and speeches about the sort of new world that they're making in Zealand and how they're brought together by the power of this uh, think together ability, um, which is, um, is she right. a communist? Or is it a technocratic communist? <laughs> um, well, I've got a quote from her. Um, it's like, um, we can make a better world than the old people did. They were only ingenious half-humans, little better than savages, all living shut off from one another, with only clumsy words to link them. Emotions they could sometimes share, but they could not think collectively. When their conditions were primitive, they could get along all right, as the animals can. But the more complex they made their world, the less capable they were of dealing with it. They had no means of consensus. They learnt to cooperate constructively in small units, but only destructively in large units. And I'm like, yeah, okay, fair enough. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it, yeah, it's tricky because it's, yeah, you're like, well, uh, she's got our number. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like that seems like a fair enough summation of the human condition. Um, so, you know, um, radical empath, <laughs> telepathy, Amiga point humans probably are superior, you know? Um, yeah. but, but there but, is a question of what happens to the people who don't have this ability in their society. Yeah, that you do wonder if... Um, I don't know, that our characters have kind of escaped agrarian, um, medieval-style eugenicists for enlightened, um, 
collectivist eugenicists, basically. And I, yeah. I, think, that's, I think that slight sinister undertone is meant to be present. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, and it's it's kind of, it's very, it's very unanswered, like, you sort of, they, the end of the book is them arriving and it's shiny and beautiful and, like, David had dreamed of when he was a child. He'd sort of had this vision of it. And there's um they have technology that they could only dream of. Or not. In, in, including to kill people very quickly with sticky webs. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They um Yeah, they can do that. Um <laughs> She's like, it's merciful really. <laughs> she she kills like <laughs> Two hundred people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, and and there there is, I think, a, a question about what what exactly does she want Petra for? You know, like, is it just? I mean, I think it's definitely she has. A lot of interest in in having Petra's yeah. ability, um, but does she have any something specific in mind? Because <laughs> like, oh, all God, she says she... is, you know, you'll learn how to use it better. But mm. is, she, is she like one of the child weapons in Akira? <laughs> 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 you know, like... ten years time, she looks really old and ancient and wrinkled up, and is oh, being God. used to yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, they're going to put her in a Ava. Um, mm. um, <laughs> anime corner on our podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> we don't know. Um, there we go. But if there is anyone out there who wants to make uh, an anime sequel to the Chrysalids, yeah. Then, uh, then yeah, go, go ahead. Hmm. Would be good. Um, yeah, I think it's it's got the the makings of a, a good anime. Um, is there a, is there a film adaptation of it? Because obviously, oh, with Midwitch Cuckoos, there's the didn't... Children of the mm. Damned and such. I don't think there is. You know, I think there's there was a radio series, a BBC radio one, and um, there was a, maybe a TV thing, but I don't think there's been a film. Hmm. Maybe you could do one here in Suffolk. <laughs> get Robert that's from the local more shop to be, to, to be the, yeah yeah maybe <laughs> I just wanted to get Robert from the local shop in to be like a preacher man That'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want to do textures of the week is it that oh time? gosh, um, yeah, it probably is, isn't it? Um, I haven't got any objects to. Re- oh, let's see what's oh. in the shelf. What's... <laughs> nothing. Um, I just hit objects. Right? Just <laughs> texture of the week. Texture of the week. <laughs> I haven't broken anything. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a. Apocalyptic, yeah, yeah, it's a, it a minimalist percussive one. Um, so they don't, they don't have instruments anymore since the tribulation. No, <laughs> they just bang things together. <laughs> um, 
Um, it's good. We're, we're, we're fleshing out the world here. Mm. Um, do I have one? Uh, vaguely, I mean, um, this isn't a particularly um, exciting texture, but um, the protagonist's back after he's been beaten and whipped by his father mm. really struck with me, partly because... It segues very quickly from before he's about to be beaten to suddenly after he's been beaten. Hmm. And so we only know about what's happened basically through the description of, of his back and that, you know, he's crying and such. Um, hmm. that, that was very vivid um, hmm. to me. Um, yeah. How, how, how about you? But but not but not more, especially more shapes, perhaps. I mean, um, I guess the, the thought shapes... I kept uh, sort of imagining a sort of semi-transparent, juddery, globular, translucent things, um, mm. which, which was interesting. And obviously it was fun imagining, imagining um, various transmorgified creatures with long arms and legs and snouts and such. Um, mm. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, both of mine are, are Badlands related. Okay. <laughs> so the first one is um, from the, the Zealand woman who's um, describing, because they, they fly over um, to, to Labrador. Um, this is a dreadful country indeed. We've seen Badlands before, but none of us have even imagined anything quite so terrible as this. There stretches of miles across where it looks as if all the ground has been fused into black glass. There's nothing else, nothing but the glass like a frozen ocean of ink, then belts of badlands, then another wilderness of black glass. Sorry, didn't attempt a New Zealand accent, because that would have been bad. No, don't, don't, yeah. Don't, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's, um, I was in Oregon quite, oh, a fair few years back, and we went to um, visit something called the Big Obsidian Flow, um, which is the remnant of uh, volcanic eruptions um, where the magma has turned to obsidian, um, which is this black glass. Um, and it's very cool. So, um, yeah, I, m I imagine that this is suggesting volcanic eruptions and then all of that cooling into obsidian for miles. Um, and the other one is Uncle Axel's description of the Badlands from when he was a sailor. Um, you can see giant distorted heads of corn growing higher than small trees, big saffrophytes growing on rocks with their roots trailing out on the wind like bunches of hair, fathoms long. In some places there are fungus colonies that you take at first sight for big white boulders. You can see succulents like barrels, but as big as small houses and with spines ten feet long. There are plants which grow on the cliff tops and send thick green cables down a hundred feet and more into the sea, and you wonder whether it's a land plant that's got into the salt water, or a sea plant that's somehow climbed ashore. <laughs> like a triffid. <laughs> One might Oh no, terrifying conjecture. crossover special. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, right i know i know you uh you said that i didn't have to do sign-offs anymore <laughs> yeah um 
So I thought this week's sign off, uh, I, I just broadcast as a thought shape uh, to those other sticky out belly button mutants who can understand them. Oh, cool. Yeah. So if you just give me a second. Okay. Any Anyone who can um, receive them should have done. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, our intro music's by Maki Yamazaki. Uh, outro music's by Joe Kelly. Our artwork's by Letty Wilson. You can find us on Twitter at StillScaredPod or email us at stillscaredpodcast at gmail.com. Um, see you next time, spooky kids. Bye. <laughs> Bye.